This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Today, I talk with Parachi Srivastava about educational planning in a time of coronavirus. Today, over 1.5 billion children are out of school. What does that mean for educational delivery and assessment? And are there any equity issues that we need to consider? Most of us have an assumption that we have access to high-speed internet. So our first response has been, let's close schools and let's turn learning online. There are many students, even in higher education, who depend on the university infrastructure to access the high-speed internet or to access online resources. And that has been, I think, a wake-up call. Even in those instances, we're seeing actually, you know, there's quite a bit of inequities there. So when we then doing this mass for primary, secondary education, there's an additional burden on families. You're actually now also having to implicate families in providing not only that technological capacity, but also parents to supervise and to be part of the learning process. Parents who have been told that they must work from home if they still have a job. Karachi is an associate professor specializing in education and international development at Western University in Canada. In our conversation, we talk about what the Global South can teach the Global North when it comes to educational planning in emergencies. In a situation of addressing an emergency or conflict, the main agencies have to find a way of coordinating. You have to think about infrastructure, health, children, women, labor, employment, social security. Education is part of all of that. Do we see that all the time in every response? Probably not. But the idea of coordination, or at least at an attempt of coordination, is something that we do talk about a little bit more. Pranchi Srivastava, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thanks, Will. It's great to be here with you. So I want to talk today about the coronavirus or or COVID-19 and education specifically. Can you give us a sense? Today is Friday, March 27th, uh, when we're speaking. Can you give me a sense as of today, how many children do we know are out of school because of COVID-19? Thanks, Will. Um, the situation is developing very quickly. And as of today, well, as of the numbers reported by UNESCO on the 25th of March, which are the latest data we have, the number of affected learners is roughly 1.5 billion. And that is equivalent to roughly 87% of enrolled learners. And that is a number that's extracted by UNESCO looking at the countrywide closures in 165 countries as of today, as of today or as of yesterday. I think it's also important to remember that prior to the pandemic, there were already 250 million children who were out of school. Um, these were the children that have, you know, are persistently out of school because of entrenched inequities. Um, the number also does not include localized school closures. So there are a number of countries, for example, Canada, the U.S., Russia, Brazil, um, Australia, that have localized school closures. So if we really think about the true number, it's probably um, higher than that, than what we see. From my rough estimates of just population data, and this is a little bit different probably than the statistics that have been used to calculate the number of enrolled learners here, But from my rough estimates of population data in in the demographic group of five to 19 year olds, 
there are roughly 1.9 billion children and youth of that population. So we can see this is affecting almost every child and youth um, on the planet. And so it's, you know, is there a regional distribution here or is this, I mean, this is truly global? This is truly global. Yeah. I mean, usually, you know, we look to see what the regional disparities are, but this is truly global. There are a few countries um, in Africa, a few countries in Asia, a few countries in the Middle East where right now the map is not showing that there are closures, but really we're talking about a handful of countries at this point. It really is global. And I mean, and why are they closing? I mean, is it, is it simply to like even in countries that might not have many cases of the coronavirus, is, mm-hmm. is it simply a precautionary measure to, to get kids home to self-isolate? Like what are the what are some of the reasons that are being used to close schools outside of, say, the really big hotspots like New York City or in Italy mm-hmm. or in other regions of the world? Like even even in the UK, where I am, the, the schools are closed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. So different countries have taken different approaches. Some countries, um, well, China was the first country to institute school closures. And that was about a month ago now. And if we see how quickly, for example, the situation has evolved. So March 4th, which is only three weeks ago, feels like a lifetime ago, was the first report that uh, UNESCO put out on school closures. And from what I recall, I think that was around 290 million children or so that they were reporting at that time. And now we can see just three weeks later, the impact being so much greater. So different countries have taken different approaches. Some countries saw, uh, you know, even one or two cases and said, you know, we, we would like to close our schools because we want to minimize impact. Other countries have been less quick to respond in that way. Um, I think the UK is a famous example of, of one country, which I think only on Friday was it really instituted, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. Yeah. So, you know, these are, these are different, um, steps that countries have taken. Canada, in terms of timing here, uh, in Ontario in particular, a lot of the schools were going on March break, uh, the week of, uh, sorry, it's around the 12th or 13th of March. And the provincial government here said, you know, the schools will be obviously closed between the March break and then an extra week afterwards, which would be the following week. Uh, very recently, our provincial government has announced that it's unlikely that we're going to open on April 6th, which was the original date and likely to be extended further. Some countries have said that, you know, uh, or some states even in the U.S. have um, issued calls to say that, you know, it's unlikely that the children are actually going to return this year. And so it's it's all developing as we speak. There is controversy on using school closures as a mechanism to limit exposure. I don't want to say controversy with a big C, but there are some diverging opinions, especially in countries where the initial number of cases has been apparently low. Um, I'm not an epidemiologist, so I can't really talk to the rate of transmission and how quickly that is and, you know, in terms of testing. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we do know that if countries have been testing pretty extensively, that the reported number of cases are probably more accurate than in countries where the testing is not as extensive or hasn't really begun in, in any great measure. So in that sense, you know, there are two ways of looking at this. In countries that have low numbers of reported cases, do we take that low number as an indication that most likely there are many more cases? And that's probably the more stringent view. And perhaps, you know, the view that 
policymakers would want to take because you don't want to take chances with a virus that seemed to be very contagious. Right. But there was initially some diverging opinion on whether or not school closures in particular are a good response, because when the Ebola crisis broke out, there were instances where closing schools were shown to have decreased or negative impacts, especially on children that are coming from vulnerable and precarious circumstances. So what we saw was an increase in physical and sexual abuse. Um, we saw an increase in pregnancies. So again, uh, for talking about teenage pregnancies, I don't know why we call it teenage pregnancy and not child pregnancy, because, you know, um, it's these are ch children. Um, we saw an increase in that, which obviously is related to other security concerns. We saw an increase in uh, psychosocial um, harm, and we saw an increase in negative impacts of exclusion from education on the children that are coming from the most vulnerable backgrounds. So children that have are coming from social backgrounds in which they're maybe un, unable to access or supplement education at home. We saw learning suffers and the, the usual kind of effects of that. Right. So I mean, so but at the same time, it almost seems like those are outcomes of closing schools. And yes, they're negative and very problematic. But at the same time, yes, closing schools probably did have the effect of minimizing the spread of viruses, right, which was the, the intention of doing so. Well, so that is where there is a little bit of evidence to show that in instances where very rigorous, I am not arguing that we should not close schools. I'm just, I'm just trying to kind of give the, the full picture that where countries have taken this measure, that there's still discussion. It's not a de facto end game, right? Um, so, but I'm just trying to give a more nuanced perspective. So Yeah, yeah. And I appreciate it because it really is quite an interesting, you know, the issue of like when you close a school, there are these sort of knock-on effects. Right. So the chief of education for UNICEF wrote a really good op-ed in the LA Times about 10 days ago on the, on the 13th of March. And he cited the example to say, you know, where there were very extensive uh, sanitization measures and where schools were provided with guidance on how to sanitize and keep those facilities clean at the time of Ebola, that in fact, the rate of infection did not go up. Ebola and COVID are, again, I'm not an epidemiologist, so I can't, con you know, I can't really comment on the similarities and the differences between these two viruses and how, you know, and how, for example, um, closing or non-closing, what is the transmission and, and how contagious those are. So I can't comment on that. I, I really don't want to say, but that was a comment that was made in terms of, um, you know, school closures. Yeah. But from my own view, from my own perspective, um, I do think that in terms of minimizing contact and in terms of the kind of capacity issues that we are seeing in our healthcare systems around the world globally, that I think school closures are probably a good first response in the situation that we're in, which is actually much different, I think, 
in terms of spread and speed of spread than Ebola. But again, I can't, you know, I'm not, that's probably a better question for a health expert. But in my own view, I think that this is probably the way that we should look at it for the time being. Right. And it seems like a lot of uh, ministers of education, for instance, have agreed and and have decided to shut schools down right now. If if the numbers are something uh, 87% of children are out of school or even, even higher, perhaps, you know, so I guess the question then is, is, what on earth are these children doing outside of school? Do, do we have any sense yet of what children are doing at home or wherever they end up going or wherever they end up living? Yeah, I mean, this is a really good question. And this is where I have been focusing my efforts to try and understand what the response is beyond school closures. So I think I think the first response is, OK, we have to close schools because we have to minimize spread. And, and that seems relatively a sensible thing to do given what we're seeing. But there is less information or the information is evolving in terms of now that we've closed schools, okay, what happens? There are a number of countries and I do on this point have to say that I've been really impressed by UNESCO and IIEP in terms of how quickly they've mobilized to provide information to anyone really who wants it. Um, on their website in terms of what's happening. So I'm getting a lot of my information from UNESCO. And from what I see uh, from their portals is that there are a number of countries. I think yesterday I counted there were about 45 countries that have instituted portals, online portals for children and for teachers to uh, in different capacity and doing different things. Some in, in some instances, it's just, you know, a list of resources. In some instances, it's online portal that is tied very closely to the home domestic curriculum. And that is also being used to stream instruction, whether that's live or asynchronous or, or, or live. And that, that has been uh, one kind of response. Another response that I've seen, which is not as, as I think IT driven would be instituting perhaps radio programming and in, or, or thinking about that at least and instituting television programming. And what we see with the radio and television programming is that these are uh, methods that have been used, particularly in the global south and other regions to reach populations that do not have connectivity, that might not have electricity. You know, we forget radio. If you have a transistor that runs on a battery, you can access frequencies on radio. Um, and so there have been some really innovative uh, programs in the past that have been, for example, targeting nomadic pastoral communities in different parts of sub-Saharan Africa um, through radio transmission, because these communities are not based in any one location for uh, very long amounts of time. They will have, in certain instances, temporary habitations. They might not have access to public services in, as we would in a settlement, in, in a formal settlement. And so this is a really innovative approach. We forget that some of the older technologies are sometimes more accessible than the newer technologies that we, at least in the Western and in the I want to say middle class, but actually it's usually the top 10th percentile 
in many global south countries that we just take for granted um and we think it's yeah so like instead of going for zoom go for go for the radio you know it's it seems like an old technology but in fact there's a long history of distance education working through radio yes distance education through radio distance education through and correspondence exactly uh, correspondence school i mean the uk you're based there right now it's a great example the open university is a great example of an institution and similarly in india ignu which is the indira gandhi national open university modeled on you know very very closely on on the open university model is a great example of providing higher education and lifelong learning through correspondence it's you know before really computers were you know a mass consumption tool but there are modules that you know you get sent out materials you read the materials you respond you have a tutor perhaps you connect via phone and you respond to those assignments and you complete them and at the end of it you can get a degree i mean it's it's a great model so how would say a policymaker decide between these different models right i mean what what would they have to be weighing up in your mind when they think okay you know covid-19 has has displaced a lot of children from schools we want to keep learning going what's the best method to do so like what would they have to how would they go about planning that solution that's a it's, it's a good question i think I think again this is my opinion this is this is my assessment of the situation I don't have data really to to back this up but my feeling in terms of how I've seen the situation evolve is that policymakers and governments and organizations international organizations that have been involved in dealing with conflict and emergency and dealing with even in stable politically stable contexts but in the south where we are talking about very huge disparities in, in terms of access to technologies and education i think they will approach or or might have those models a little bit more readily accessible to them at least in their planning portfolio um and maybe even in their kind of psyche of what happens in education and so they might have more options that they consider as a de facto potential to reach different groups i i feel that in this particular moment where we're at the countries of the west or the north or however you want to call them the higher high income countries particularly in the west i don't think we have that same experience i don't think we have that same capacity to way some of those options into our planning primarily because for the most part if specifically if we're talking about Canada the US the UK you know for th these countries where for the most part we have had relative peace and stability in, on our own soil even if we have been involved in conflicts and they've been in other countries um but on our own soil and we've had a relatively very good level of access of course there are disparities and of course there are communities even in our own countries that have been traditionally left out and this is also shocking and and very bad but traditionally as a society you know societies we have not had to face that and also because we most of us have an assumption that we have access to high speed internet it's an assumption in fact now this is throwing up that there are many communities even in canada even in the us even in the uk that don't have access to that 
but it's these are assumptions that we have taken for granted. So our first response has been, let's close schools and let's turn learning online. Let's shift everything online. The clearest example of that has been in the higher education or university sector, in which most universities that took that decision, many of them took that decision even before our own ministries made a formal statement. But most universities that took that decision took them almost overnight. I mean, we have, you know, examples and even in my own university where, you know, we have examples where the universities were given two or three days, professors were given two or three days to just convert everything onto online platforms. And some universities were set up for that because perhaps we were already engaging in um, you know, solid models of, of distance education through online learning. For example, at Western and my faculty, we were doing that. But even within the university, there might be faculties that didn't do that. After having been kind of forced to do that, we realized that there are many students, even in higher education, who depend on the university infrastructure to access the high speed internet or to access online resources. And that has been, I think, a wake up call that you know, even in higher education, where technically I would say that between primary, secondary and tertiary education and higher education, university education, perhaps the infrastructure was relatively better developed in higher education than the other two sectors. Even in those instances, we're seeing actually, you know, there's quite a bit of inequities there. So when we then think about doing this mass for primary, secondary education, there's a, an additional burden on families, right? You're actually now also having to implicate families in providing not only that technological capacity, but also parents to supervise and to be part of the learning process. Parents who have been told that they must work from home if they still have a job, right? There are so many other things that are going on simultaneously. Parents who might be in, in, in situations where they are having to work at home and are maybe even in critical jobs and have to work at home and then are also having to supervise the learning of their children and because their children are not independent learners the way they would be if they were in higher education. They require more support. And then, of course, there are financial, all sorts of financial uh, implications right now uh, in terms of whether or not they'll have a job, whether or not they have a job, whether or not they have income coming in, how are they going to sustain themselves? And of course, in certain countries, we are seeing benefit packages now rolling out. But all of this, when the family and the home becomes the site of every provision, we have to take that in terms of what that means, particularly for learners that are coming from um, precarious backgrounds. Yeah, I mean, it seems like there's um, in precarious backgrounds or in more unstable conditions where, you know, the, the necessity is ensuring that there's food on the table every day. Mm -hmm. Learning almost sort of gets put down the hierarchy. It's not as important as, you know, survival in many cases. So I, you said earlier was really fascinating is that the, the global south, many countries in the global south, uh, had lots of experience with providing education in emergencies uh, or, you know, in post-conflict societies or even in conflict societies. Mm -hmm. So I wonder, you know, what sort of lessons can the global South basically give 
the global north as you know many of these countries as you said the US the UK Canada Australia are for the first time in many years in many decades are experiencing a level of uncertainty and conflict that is unusual that is causing chaos and that policymakers simply have no idea how to operate within i mean there must be some lessons that the global south can offer there are you know and again all of this is fraught with you know, it's so hard to speak in general terms, right? Because the nuance, the devil is really in the detail, right? Um, mm. So just to give you a little bit of background, I used to work in in, in conflict-affected context myself. Uh, that's how I started my career um, almost 20 years, actually more than 20 years ago now. I started working in Albania, Bosnia, and Kosovo uh, during the Kosovo conflict. And I was involved with initially providing or helping to design programming, psychosocial programming for refugee children in Albania and Bosnia who were coming in as refugees. And then later on moved to Kosovo where I led the first minority program for Roma and Ashkalia children. And this was, you know, lots of community building um, and became a pilot program, which then got extended throughout which what is now the country. And then later on moved into the UN mission and was designing policy around this very issue, uh, minority integration and education in a newly developing education system for uh, an eventual country. At the time, it was not yet uh, recognized as a as a country. So that's where a lot of my immediate thoughts came to that, um, to those experiences, to that literature that has actually developed post those conflicts. Um, in the late 90s, there was very little, almost no real literature on this. And then since then, we see over the last 20 years, there is a literature that has developed. There's a field of study that has developed around education and emergencies and, and conflict-affected contexts and post-conflict reconstruction. And I do think that for many of us, those would be good places to start, even as researchers, to actually start reading some of that work and to not think that just because the work was in Afghanistan or is in Haiti or is that it's not relevant, that the lessons are not relevant, the biggest lesson that I would think about is coordination. And coordination is, it, this is a fraught term. This is a contested term. It's contested even regarding whether or not coordination actually happens. But in a situation of addressing an emergency or conflict, the main agencies have to find a way of coordinating. This is not usually a simple process. There's a lot of tension and struggle involved, but the main agencies will generally find a way of coordinating WHO, UNICEF, UNHCR. They'll find a way of coordinating and they will also find a way of saying, okay, let's set together a planning uh, forum or a commission and let's figure out how we're actually going to deliver basic essential services during this time, whether it's in a IDP camp, a camp for international internally displaced persons, or whether it's in a refugee camp or whether it is more broadly in a time of kind of quote unquote reconstruction. But they will have to find a way of coordinating among themselves and coordinating with the government, the local government. I think that much of the planning in our, in quote unquote, our own countries, and I'm very much speaking about countries in the West and the North, has seen a prolonged period of being siloed, of actually being quite partitioned. And as a result, you might have some coordination with the Ministry of Finance because you know that that's where your money is coming from if you're a Ministry of Education. 
Um, and you might have some coordination, perhaps with some other ministries that are relevant to some niche kind of part of your operations. But what we tend to see is real kind of siloed approaches to education planning. And I think that in a situation that we're in, where what we're seeing is that this pandemic is affecting every sphere of social life, every sector, every person. Um, this is not an approach that we can take in education. So for example, are the ministries of health and education cooperating? If so, how are they cooperating? Are the ministries of health and or if where they have labor or, or social welfare ministries, are they cooperating? Child welfare, you know, these are the kinds of areas, infrastructure, right? All of these are the kinds of areas that when we're talking about, say, a development project or a question of conflict response, response and emergency, you have to think about infrastructure, health, children, women, labor, employment, social security, education is part of all of that. I mean, it should be considered part of all of that. Do we see that all the time in every response? Probably not. But the idea of coordination, or at least at an attempt of coordination, is something that we do talk about a little bit more. And I'm not seeing that so much here. Um, the other problem, it's not a problem. It's just a challenge. It's, it's a structural challenge, is that in some countries, in many countries, education systems might be decentralized to a level where local authorities or states or provinces might have very different structures of their own internal education systems. What education looks like in one state or province or local region might not be the same in, a, in, in, in another one in the same country. There may or may not be a, a federal or national ministry or department or coordinating body for education, which means that making a coordinated response becomes difficult. And that requires a coordinating body in and of itself, right? So how do we, should we come together? How should we come together to have some kind of a coordinated response? That doesn't mean that it has to be a nationalized response, which is exactly the same for all, because that will not work in, in every country, given the huge disparities that we will see in different um, regions and states and provinces. But at least are there channels of communication are there things that we are all facing that are somewhat general and that we can discuss? So these are the kinds of, I think, efforts that in planning and in administration, that in times of conflict and wide scale emergency, we are forced to tackle. And I'm not saying that they are always tackled in the best way or that they are unproblematic or that they're not contested, but the mental models guiding that are somehow floating around, right. you know, that if you're working in this sector in emergency and, and humanitarian response, there's this idea of coordination that's floating around and we should try to get there, which might be missing. Right, right. Which might be missing in some other countries that haven't haven't had too much conflict. So do you think that this pandemic will fundamentally change education systems worldwide? I mean, I think, I think the pandemic is going to change a lot of our systems. How permanent those changes are going to be, of course, it remains to be seen. We are so at the early stages of this situation. I tend to follow, um, from a theoretical perspective, very closely, uh, new institutional, um, economic theory, 
And the ideas there are that where you have huge, unprecedented change, much of that change is not sustained over time, that some of that change will be institutionalized, but much of it will not, because at some point we will revert back to path dependency or the way we used to do things, because it's what we know and it's how we tend to rationalize the world. Um, I think in what is unique about this moment in history that we're at is that, I mean, it is not an overstatement to say that the whole world is experiencing unprecedented change. If we just look at even school closures, if we just take that as an example, right, to have 90, almost 90% of kids not in school, and this is unprecedented. We just have never experienced that. So maybe some of the impact of that will be more sustained than in a short-term rebellion in, in one context, in one state somewhere, right? I do think that education will be more valued. The reason I say that is because for the first time, at least in the West, we as citizens, especially those of us who are parents, are directly implicated in the education of our children. We, we are seeing what that means. Um, I think we are also, you know, in a moment, we're coming from a moment where for many years, there have been certain measures that have been instituted in, in many countries that have undercut the value of education, devaluing teachers as professionals, um, taking away certain kinds of resources from our systems. There are many, many examples that we can go into, but I think it's easier to make those arguments when the mass population is not directly implicated because you're not there. You're not, you're not part of the nitty gritty everyday. Oh my God, this is what it takes to educate my child or, or a young person. I think people are actually recognizing that. So my hope, because despite the quite critical stuff I write, <laughs> I'm actually a quite hopeful person. So my hope is that some of that will be retained that we will be able to make stronger arguments for adequately funding education, for adequately uh, providing resources to our education systems. Not, I'm not just talking about schools. I'm talking about all the, the support that goes around functioning systems of education. And so perhaps some of that will be retained. Perhaps we'll be able to make stronger arguments. We have to remember that you know, one quarter of countries, so that's 25% of countries prior to entering the pandemic, were not reaching the education finance targets. So there are global targets that have been set for education financing that say that every country should be spending roughly 6% of their GDP or 15 or to 20% of their domestic budgets on education. And about 25% of countries were already not doing that. Okay. So we're already coming into this pandemic with many countries who are not able to meet the, the education financing targets or they're not willing to. That's a different conversation. Is it, you know, are they able to or are they not willing to? But, you know, they're already underfunded. And then even amongst the countries that are meeting those targets, I've been doing some analysis looking at education um, financing since 2002, which was the beginning of the EFA goals, education for all goals. 
And, you know, we did some disaggregated analysis and looked at the data and found that the ones that were meeting the targets tended to be the countries that are high income or high middle income countries, right? So there's, you can actually see the disparity in terms of financing. So I hope that we're able to kind of generate more momentum for that. Well, I I hope so too. And it'll be really interesting to see what happens with this pandemic going forward and, and its implications on education. Pranchi Srivastava, all right, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. It really was a pleasure of talking today. Thank you, Will. And uh, it was lovely talking with you. Parachi Srivastava is an associate professor specializing in education and international development at Western University. A transcript of today's interview can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. FreshEd's team includes Sherry Yang, Hong Zong, Lushik Waba, Fatih Akhtas, and In Jung Cho. Original music for FreshEd was created by Digital Primate. FreshEd is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, NORAG, and listeners like you. Please consider becoming a monthly sponsor of FreshEd by visiting freshedpodcast.com support. All U.S.-based donations are tax-deductible. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.